We are expecting. What does that phrase make you think of? For many of us, it probably makes us think that someone is expecting a baby, that they're pregnant. But think about that word, expecting, expect. It means to anticipate or look forward to the coming or occurrence of something or someone. The Israelites in the first century had a lot of expectations. They were living in the shadow of the Roman Empire and they didn't like it. So they had expectations for a great king, a mighty conqueror. These expectations riddled the minds of first century Israel. And finally, one day, their expectations became a reality. But was it really what they wanted? Were their expectations fulfilled? How did they respond when they realized that their king had come? Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Northridge Church. And, you know, this morning I want to ask you a question. How many of you at all of our campuses, whether you're watching online or you're at one of our campuses, how many of you by a show of hands would say you are a competitive person? Throw your hands in the air, all of our campuses. Yeah, we've got a lot of competitive people. A lot of competitive people. That's, that's what I would say about myself. I'm a, I'm a competitive person. There's just this natural drive in, inside of me, this nature that, 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 that wants to win. And I've kind of seen it all over my life. When I was a, a little boy playing with my brothers, I was always intense. I, I, I wanted to win. And I saw it in sports in middle school and in high school. I was just that intense, passionate player that, that, that losing wasn't an option. And, you know, I thought as I got older, I thought, you know, as I got more mature, that that drive and that passion, that competition would, you know, diminish a little bit. Or at least I'd be able to control it at, at some point. <laughs> But as I got into, you know, the dating game and I started dating my wife, Ashley, you know, we could barely play games together because we were both competitive and it just never led to good places in the relationship. Some of you can relate, obviously. But, you know, I saw this played out in, in my life just a week ago with my family. You know, my, my wife, Ashley, and I, and, and my daughter, Joelle, who's about four years old, we were laid out, sprawled out in the living room. The two younger kids were in bed, and we got this new board game at, at our Christmas party, and we're sitting around, and you would think we'd be able to sip a, a cup of coffee, be able to, you know, it's the holiday season, and just enjoy being together as a family playing a board game. And the whole object of this game, the three of us are sitting around and we're all on the same team. So this is a good thing for our family. We're not competing against each other, but we're all together trying to win the game. We either all lose or we all win. And the object of this game is, you know, you gotta get to Cinderella's castle by the time the clock strikes 12. <laughs> now I know what you're all thinking, don't judge me. It's a season, okay? It's a season. I was Mickey Mouse, Joelle was Belle, and Ashley was Alice in Wonderland. And so we're about halfway through this game, and I'm kind of doing some calculations in my head, and I'm like, we're going to lose. <laughs> if things don't change, we're going to lose. And I begin to sweat a little bit. And so I'm like, okay, it's okay, Drew. 
everybody loses, and I'm thinking in my head, okay, what can we do? Like, I, I just, I, you know what, I just got to rally the troops. I just got to tell Joel, spin a little bit differently. Like, hey, you know what, like you count a little bit, like, okay, come on, God, come on, team, we can pull this together. We've got to get to Cinderella's castle. <laughs> and I, I pause for a second, and I'm like, what the heck is wrong with me? <laughs> like, I can't even sit on our living room, drink a cup of coffee, and, and during the holiday season, enjoy a game with my family. Like there is absolutely something positively wrong with me. And maybe you can relate because you have that competitive drive. And what's interesting is you think about the Christmas story and you think about that concept of competition. You see, at Christmas, ultimately what we celebrate is the birth of Jesus Christ. But what's interesting about his life from day one, from day one of his birth, Jesus faced competition. There was another king when Jesus was born in the first century that battled for the kingdom. And we're going to see that in Matthew chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Matthew chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one of the Northridge Bibles. It's going to be on page 783. And I encourage you to jump in there on your phone or turn your Bible there. Grab your uh, program to take notes or jump in through the Northridge app. And as you're making your way to Matthew chapter 2, I want to welcome all of our campuses, um, those of you who are watching with us online and all of our guests here this morning. Merry Christmas to everybody and welcome to Northridge Church. And here's the great news for everybody. Not only do we get to hang out today, but we get to do it again tomorrow. Aren't you excited? Yeah. Webster, Greece, Henrietta, you guys excited? I'm excited because here's the deal. We get to celebrate Christmas today and then tomorrow we have our Christmas Eve services, which are completely unique today. In fact, we're, we're going to bring this series to a climax on Christmas Eve. And so here's what I do. I encourage you to, to, to go home today and come back tomorrow. Bring a family member with you, a friend with you, and we're going to celebrate Christmas at our Christmas Eve services. We've got eight services over four locations, not counting those online. It's going to be a great celebration of Christmas, so I'd encourage you to come back. And we're in this series, week three of a, a series we're calling Our King Has Come, and, and we're just talking about Jesus as our king and how, what people expected of him, what they saw about him as king, and, and what they wanted from him. And here in Matthew 2, Jesus, the king, faces competition from another king. We see it here in verse 1. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And so here Jesus is just born. And immediately, I mean, right after Jesus is born, there's these magi. Now, we don't use that word very often in our culture. Magi is just a wise person. They're astrologers, and they're chasing after this star, this star that appeared, according to prophecy, that predicted that the new king was born. And so these wise men are traveling, following this star to ultimately get to Jesus, to worship this new king. Now, here comes the problem. In their pursuit of the new king, they run into the existing king. His name was Herod. If you asked any person in Judea, the region of Judea, who was the king in that time frame in first century, they would have said boldly and loudly, it was King Herod. And you can imagine what this must have been like. These wise men are like, hey, we heard there's a new king. Could you show us where he is as they're looking at the existing king? You can imagine how well that went over, but here's, here's the reality is I don't honestly think we can fully understand what this passage is saying until we understand what type of king Herod was, how he ruled, how he reigned. 
because it's so crucial to the Christmas story. And yet we say that, you know, it's Christmas time. And I think for many of us, when we read these passages, like Matthew chapter 2, you know, we've become so used to hearing these passages every Christmas season that they've almost become fables in our mind. Man, this is a cool story that we talk about at Christmas. And, and, and I don't even know sometimes if we believe it, was actu- it actually happened. And I want you to understand something this morning, that these aren't just a story to, to believe in. It's an actual historical event. This really took place. In fact, let me take you where it took place. Check this out. Jesus was born to be king of Israel. But if you asked anyone living in Israel who the king was at the time of Jesus' birth, they would have answered King Herod. He was the ruler of the region of Israel, and he made sure everybody knew it. The story of Jesus collides with King Herod at Jesus' birth in Matthew chapter 2, which says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. It seems to me that the only way you can understand the type of king that Jesus was is to really understand the type of king that Herod was. The most important elements of the reign of Herod the Great can be summed up with three major principles. The first principle that defined the kingship of Herod was his obsession with displaying his power through massive building projects. He showed no restraint with his extravagance and built a variety of incredible structures. One of his major projects was the construction of a state-of-the-art city on the Mediterranean Sea. The building area itself was marshy and unstable, but undaunted by this, Herod rebuilt the coastline, drained the marshes, and built a beautiful city which he named Caesarea. The port at Caesarea became the largest harbor in the world. It was 100 feet wide and totaled 520 acres. To build this port, he brought in concrete from Italy and placed it 80 feet under the ocean surface. 2,000 years ago, this was an engineering marvel. But that wasn't the end of his design genius. He built an underwater sewage system that would drain with the tides. This city obviously needed fresh water, but the closest source of fresh water was miles away. So Herod ordered the construction of a massive aqueduct from a spring all the way to the city. To top it all off, he built a palace that went over the ocean and included a freshwater pool. One time, when sailing back from Rome, Herod didn't think that Caesarea looked impressive enough from a distance. So he ordered the entire city to be covered in marble. If you walk the beaches today, you can still find marble fragments, remnants of the majesty of the city over 2,000 years later. Caesarea was just one of his accomplishments. Herod also built a palace at the fortress of Masada. This fortress, located in the desert of southern Israel, sat on top of a mountain that was only accessible by a single winding path. But on top of this precipice, Herod constructed a luxurious and stunning multi-tiered palace complex as a secure spa destination and private residence. He made sure he had all the amenities he could want, including hot baths and impressive art, some of which remain to this day. Herod built another palace fortress on top of a hill, but this one was perched at the summit of a man-made hill within the eyesight of the village of Bethlehem. This palace was called the Herodian, named to make Herod's legacy last forever. It was circular, well-fortified, and built for Herod's entertainment, which is why it included its own amphitheater. The entire structure, 
from the hills to the walls was built in order to display his grandeur and power. Through his luxurious palaces, Herod wanted those he ruled to know how great he was. But the question is, how did he pay for all of this? The second principle of Herod's kingship was his wealth. Herod was able to build such marvelous buildings because he was a wealthy king. He had so much money that he could spend an incredible fortune, not only on buildings in his own kingdom, but also on elaborate structures abroad. He became very wealthy by the way he taxed the people of Israel. Herod taxed the people to death. The people of Israel had to pay all kinds of taxes, a Roman tribute tax, a trade tax, a market exchange tax, and a temple tax. Scholars believe that these combined taxes resulted in nearly 75% of the people's income going towards taxes. Of the funds that came in, Herod would take 50%, Caesar would take about 12%, and the remaining 38% would go to the intended government agency. People would fish all night. They'd get into port and there, waiting for them, was a tax collector. It's almost impossible to get any margin in your budget with up to 75% of your income going towards taxes. So the people would live in incredible debt, trying to recover from this great burden. They were losing their land, living paycheck to paycheck, and scraping by one day at a time. The third principle of Herod's kingship was his insecurity. Herod was always nervous about losing his kingdom. He was so insecure about maintaining control that anyone he deemed to be a threat was quickly killed. And we're not just talking about political enemies. This paranoid violence started with his own family. At one point, he viewed his sons as a threat to his kingdom. He drowned one of them in the family pool because he was suspicious that he wanted to become the next king. Two of his other sons, sons that were his outspoken favorites, he strangled because he began to believe that they were plotting his death only to discover later he was wrong. Just think, that's how he treated his favorite sons. This king was completely unstable, power hungry, and paranoid. When he had a dispute with a group of the Jewish leaders called the Sanhedrin, he had them executed. Why? Because he was the king, so he could do anything he wanted. Above all, during this time as king, it bothered Herod that the Jewish people didn't love him. He thought that they should appreciate his rule because he had some Jewish lineage. He practiced many elements of the Jewish faith, and he even turned the temple in Jerusalem into another one of his favorite construction projects, investing in its improvement and expansion. But he never gained the Jewish people's approval. So his last order before dying was to gather all the influential Jewish leaders in the region near Jerusalem and have them barricaded in a stadium. Then he issued this horrific decree to his servants. When I die, I want you to slaughter everyone in that stadium. Thankfully, Herod's servants were only loyal to him out of fear. The moment he died, the prisoners were released. The order was never carried out. Clearly, Herod protected his kingdom at all costs. No one was exempt from his angry paranoia. So when Jesus was born on the first Christmas, how do you think Herod responded when he heard the news that a new king had been born in Bethlehem? He would do whatever was necessary to get rid of this threat. So you can imagine with all that new insight, you'll read the story a little bit differently. Because, I mean, could you imagine what, what type of king Herod was and how he responded when Magi showed up on his front door and said, hey, we're looking for a new king. 
I mean, in fact, we, we see exactly how he responds in verse three. It says this, it says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. You see, this shocked Herod, this bothered Herod. And what's interesting is that line after, Herod was disturbed, but all of Jerusalem was. And I think that gives you an indication of what kind of king Herod was. Because when King Herod was happy, so was all of Jerusalem. But when King Herod was mad or furious or disturbed, so was the rest of the area. That was the type of king he was. And when Herod heard these news, you have to, when he heard this news, you got to understand, Herod was threatened by Jesus. Herod was, th everything that Herod held dearly to, everything that he built, every palace he had, his power, his wealth, was all threatened by this new king named Jesus. And so Herod had to respond to what he was hearing. He had to do his homework. He had to answer two very important questions to him. One, who was this new king? And two, where was he located? And so verse four, he takes action. It says this, when he called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was supposed to be born. And so Herod is a wise king. He's protected his kingdom long enough to know what to do when he hears the threat of a new king. He calls together all the chief priests and all the teachers of the law. You gotta remember, Herod was a Roman king, but he had Jewish lineage. And so he had the right connections to get the right answers. And so he brings together the teachers of the law to find the answers he's looking for. But knowing the fact that he had a Jewish heritage, he would have heard of the Messiah, the coming Messiah. That wouldn't be news to him. But probably what scared Herod the most was what most people believed the Messiah would come and do. You see, most people in, in this region of Judea that believed in the Messiah that was coming, they didn't think that Jesus was coming to die on a cross. They thought Jesus was coming to, to, to take over the Roman Empire, and that meant Herod was going down. And so he assigns these teachers of the law to find all the right information. And Herod, wanting to protect his kingdom, he would do anything necessary to get rid of this king. He would do whatever it took. He would do anything necessary to get rid of this new king. I mean, he would go to whatever limit he had to go to to protect what was his and what he accomplished and what he built. And so in verse five, he gets his answer. It says this, it says, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's a prophecy about Jesus. Verse seven, it says, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for this child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. And so Herod gets the answer to his first question. Where will this king be? But the, the answer probably shocked him, Bethlehem. Because Bethlehem was, was Herod's backyard. You saw one of his palaces. It was called the Herodian. And the Herodian, if you were to stand on the top of that man-made precipice, it was only three miles to Bethlehem. And so at the top of one of his palaces, he could see all of Bethlehem. And so this news shocked Herod because it wasn't like the king was coming to invade him. The king had already arrived. He was in his backyard. Herod didn't have time to prep and, and prepare for this because this new king was already here. And so he begins to plan. He plans for what he's going to do, but he also comes up with a back, backup plan. 
It said Herod went to the Magi and asked them, hey, when exactly did that star appear? I need to know that information because this was going to be Herod's backup plan. He wanted to know exactly how old Jesus was going to be just in case he needed that information, just in case he needed to pull out a trump card. And so what he does is he sends the wise men, the magi, to Jesus. Hey, you, you go find this king. You go worship him. You give him your gifts. And when you find him, let me know where he is so I can worship him too, meaning get rid of him. And so the wise men go, verse 11, it says this, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And so the Magi, they go and they find Jesus in a manger with his mother Mary, and they, they worship him. They give him gifts, and then as they go to leave, they're ready to go back to Herod and give him the information he wants, but God comes to him in a dream and sends them in a different direction. And I want to pause here because I love the sovereignty of God right here. Because here Jesus is as a baby, and in his humanity, he probably has no clue what's going on. I mean, he's, he's anywhere from two years old or younger, and he probably has no clue in his humanity that there is another king trying to take him out right now. And, and, and the reality is, is every single one of us, we have problems in life. We might not have a king trying to kill us, but we all face and encounter problems in life. And here's what I want you to understand, that God's plan for your life is way bigger than any problem you will face. And it was true for his son, Jesus, the plan that he had in place for his son. No problem, no king, no ruler was going to get in the way of that. And that is the reality for your life and my life, is God has plans for your lives. And you may encounter problems, you may encounter troubles, but they are so small compared to the plans that God has for your life. And that was true for Jesus. And, you know, we, we would think the story would end right here, right? Herod had a plan, like, hey, Go find the king and, and let me know where he is, and I'll go worship him too. But God intervenes and sends the magi in a different direction. And so the, the, Herod, is, his plans are foiled. Like, what, what is he going to do from here? But Herod was a wise king. I told you he'd have a backup plan for his original plan. He, he'd protected his kingdom long enough to know how to, to get around certain things. Verse 16, we see it. It says, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Remember that question Herod asked the Magi before they left? Hey, when did you see that star? You see, he took that information and realized that Jesus was going to be anywhere from two years and younger. And so he used that information as a backup plan. He said, you know what? I know how to get rid of this king. I will just kill every single boy in Bethlehem from two and under. In that area and in that region, we'll get rid of them all. This king will be no longer. And man, Herod's crazy. I mean, he's so mad that the magi tricked him, outwitted him that he was willing to go to whatever means necessary to defend what was his. And you gotta ask the question, like what, what got Herod to this place? I mean, he's, he's no longer like a normal human being anymore. He's a lunatic, he's a crazy man. 
And how did he get here? It's one thing to protect your kingdom. It's a whole nother level to kill all the baby boys in that vicinity two years and under. And here's the reality for Herod is he's seeing all that he built and all that he holds dearly slipping through his fingers. Herod, he saw all that he had built just wasting and fleeting away. And here's the problem is Herod couldn't imagine his life without his power without his palaces, without his wealth. And it, wasn't, it was a world that he really didn't want to live in because that's what he hoped in and that's what he trusted in. Check this out. The story of these two kings, Herod the Great and Jesus, is a story of hope. We see the power of hope played out all over the pages of this story. Herod was a man of great hope. It was just misplaced. He placed all of his hope in his incredible power and money. He relied on those things. He needed them. And unfortunately, I believe many of us are guilty of that today. We put all of our hope and trust in our finances, our status, or our control, more than in Jesus. But that's a misplaced hope. And whatever we place our hope in, that thing becomes the object of our worship. Let me suggest that who or what we worship is not found in who or what we say we worship. It's found in these three things. Worship is about your time, your energy, and your money. If you follow the trail of these key areas, if you were to follow the trail of your time, the trail of your energy and your money, at the end of that trail, there is a throne and whoever and whatever is really sitting on that throne is what we really worship. For Herod, he worshiped his money and power. But if you look around at all that Herod had, it's gone. His palaces and his marvelous buildings lie in ruins. All his money is gone. At one point in his life, he was famous, well-known and powerful, but now, the only reason people come to see these sites is because they are mentioned in the story of the birth of the real King of Kings, whose kingdom will never end. Herod exists as an interesting footnote in the story of King Jesus. You know, I, I really believe that Herod's story is a warning for all of us. Because we look at Herod's story and we think, man, this guy's nuts, this guy's crazy. But as I look at my life, I think many of us, we can really relate to Herod. We have a lot in common with Herod, whether we want to admit it or not, because at the end of the day, Herod trusted in certain things. He trusted in his money to get him through. He trusted in his power to protect him. He trusted in his palaces. And, and I don't think we're that far from Herod in our culture today because trust and hope are really powerful things. And I wonder where we're placing those things today. Because many of us, we, we trust in something, but I believe it's often that our trust is misplaced. And, and that's really what, what was wrong with Herod, is he just trusted, he placed his hope and his trust in the wrong things. And I think yet we can relate to that and we're guilty of that. In fact, I wonder what you trust in this morning. You see, we're just like Herod because we put our trust in things. We put our trust in, in things of this world. And, and I wonder today, where do you put your trust? We put our trust in, in blank, and you fill in that blank this morning. What are you trusting in? For, for some of you, I believe you, you trust your job 
more than you trust Jesus. Because you believe that your job can sustain you, it can sustain your family and provide for your needs and your wants, and you bank on that more than you bank on Jesus. For some of you, I think you bank on your education. Because your education is, is what people think of you. It's, it's what gets you from point A to point B. It's what provides for you. And so you bank on that. You trust in that and you hope in that. For some of you, it's your status, your popularity, your power, your home, your car. Whatever it is, I think for a majority of us, we can relate to Herod because we have taken our trust and we have taken our hope and we've removed it from the king of kings and we've placed it in other things. And here's the problem with that. Here's where it leads us. Because what we trust in often becomes the object of our worship. You see, when we take our trust and we put it in things, what it does is it builds this throne. And whatever sits on that throne in our life is what we truly worship. And I wonder for many of us, including myself, what is sitting on that throne? When we trust in things, it postures our heart and our mind and our soul to worship the very things that we were never created to worship. And maybe you're here this morning and, and you're wondering, you know, what do I truly worship? I mean, I think that's a really good question to ask. I think Herod's story reminds us to ask that question. In my life, what do I truly worship? Because I, I believe this, man. I believe there's a lot of people who claim to worship Jesus. But do you really? I mean, honestly, at the core of who you are, you, it's easy to claim with my mouth who I worship, but it's a whole nother level to claim and to, to worship God with our lives. And if you want to know what you worship, just follow the trail. Follow the trail of your life. Follow the trail of your time. It's the end of 2018. A year is over, and I wonder what your calendar says you worship. If you were to look back at your life and look solely at your calendar, what would it declare that you worship today? You see, time is the most valuable thing that you have. We don't know when it's, it's, we're going to run out. And I wonder what your calendar would say. I would tell you to follow the trail of your energy, your passions, your gifts, your talents. Where are you investing those? Where are you putting those? If you follow that trail, what would it say you truly worship? Follow the trail of your money. Check your bank statement, your credit card statement, your purse or your wallet. Who would that declare you worship by the way you spend your money? You see, I, I think that's a scary thing to ask because I think if we're just real, some of us, we don't want to follow that trail because we're afraid of what it might reveal about us. We're afraid that if I look at the way I spend my money, if I look at the way I spend my time and my energy, I'm afraid that the results won't be what I'm claiming with my mouth. You see, I think at some point we have to follow those trails to really see if we're worshiping the king of kings. And the reality of, of many of us is we are trusting and we are hoping, which leads us to worship things that aren't Jesus. That was Herod. He trusted in everything he could see. He trusted and hoped in everything he had built. And the problem with many of us trusting in earthly things is trust placed in temporary things dies with us. 
That's the reality is when we trust in things of this earth and things of this world, they're fleeting and they fade. And although they promise to deliver, they always leave us empty inside. The reality is, is the reason why we don't rely on these things is they don't deliver. The only person who does deliver is Jesus. So the Bible says, Matthew chapter six, it says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Trust is a big thing. And when you place it in things of this earth, it fades. It won't deliver. And we see this in Herod's life. I mean, at one point in Herod's life, he had the American dream. He had all the money in the world. He had the nicest home in the world. He had all the power anybody could want. In fact, in, the, in, in that day, in first century, probably majority of people wished they were Herod because of all he had. But if you fast forward the tape 2,000 years later, every palace that he has built lies in ruins. If you don't believe me, just travel to Israel. I was there a year ago. They're all just a bunch of boulders laying on the ground. All of the money he held so closely to, someone else has or it's buried in the ground and his power has been stripped away from him. And the reality is, is honestly, the only reason why we remember Herod the Great is because his story is written in a much greater story of the true king, the king of kings, that is King Jesus. That's the only reason why his legacy lasts on. And that is a warning for all of us, is if we want to live a life worthy of a legacy, we won't invest and we won't store up things on this earth, but we will place our, 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 our time and our energy in money and investments that ultimately are eternal, in people and in relationships. And you know what? I, it's Christmas. I mean, we're two days away. And, and honestly, I think Christmas is the worst time of year when we do the exact same thing Herod does is we place our hope in things. Because I believe this, for many of you, you're banking on the season and the holiday of Christmas to, to give your life joy. Because you think, hey, uh, in two days, there's gonna be a present under that tree that maybe might change the way I feel about my life right now. Or maybe you're, you're thinking that maybe the Christmas holiday will fix the dysfunction in my family for a short period of time. And we're hoping and we're trusting in Christmas to fix things that only honestly Jesus can do in your life. And we do this all throughout the year. Forget Christmas for a second. I mean, we bank on things on a regular basis to give us joy. Hey, if I could just get that house I've been dreaming of, if I could just get that promotion I've been longing for, if I could just step into that relationship that I've desired, then I will have it all. And the reality is, is whether we get those things or not, they end up usually never delivering what they, we think they will. And I'm telling you today, things of this world will always fail to deliver, but I promise you, Jesus never will. He never will. And so as we gear up two days away from celebrating one of the greatest holidays to ever celebrate, the birth of the king, I would just ask you to, to maybe... Look inside before you prepare to celebrate and ask yourself this question, in which kingdom 
do you trust? In which kingdom do you trust? Because at the the end of the day, there is only two options. You either trust in the kingdom God is building and has built for you through his son, Jesus Christ, or you trust in the kingdom that you are building. You see, Herod trusted in the kingdom that he established and that he built through his own power and his own might. And he spent much of his life trying to protect it and make sure it wouldn't fade, but there was nothing he could do to keep his palaces from crumbling. And maybe you're tired today of trying to protect what you've built, and maybe today you step into a kingdom that will never fade, will never be destroyed, that will be there for eternity. That is the kingdom of God. Or maybe today you take a good hard look and you follow the trail of your life and you establish which kingdom you are truly worshiping. Maybe today as you go home and at the end of 2018, you follow that trail of your time and your energy and your money and you say, and you ask a really difficult question, who do I truly worship? Do I worship me more than I worship God? Because I promise you, if you follow the trail of where you place your hope and where you place your trust, it will answer the question, which kingdom are you following? Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. Thanks how it speaks directly to us, the story thousands of years ago. It, it is so relevant to today. And God, I just pray that you challenge us. The new year is coming. And as we gear up in two days to celebrate your birth, our king coming, I pray that you truly are our king, God. And that would be evident not just in our words, but it would be evident in the way we live and the way we invest. In Jesus' name, amen.